Good morning, everybody. Um, what Mike meant was that there are 96,176 people within one town of our church that if you ask them what their relationship with God is, they would say, none. Um, or I don't believe. And so kind of our, our thing as a church is we want to be this place of hope, this beacon of light in a place where a lot of people are looking for hope, um, those 96,176 people. So thank you for being part of what we're trying to do and reach those folks with the hope and the love and the promise of Christ. Now, I missed you all last week. Uh, I was out of town, but I loved what Dr. David Emanuel from Alliance Theological Seminary did and said. Um, just wonderful, putting another piece in the kind of puzzle, another, another you know, kind of um, base in the building of what we're trying to build here, which is we're trying to understand how Jesus sees things, how when he was on earth, how he saw his world, and how now while he dwells, his dwelling place is within us, he still sees our world. And, and my argument would be, therefore, how we should interpret our world, right? The same way, those of us that, that at least say we want to follow Jesus, we should interpret our world in the same way. The ancient prophet, um, the ancient um, Israel prophet, uh, Isaiah, he had prophesied that when the Savior came, that those who were watching for the Savior and believed that he was coming, that when he came, those that had waited for him would see him, their Messiah, and their world in similar new ways. He used the saying, in fact, he coined the saying, eye to eye. And so what we're trying to do over these few weeks is we're trying to take on Jesus' worldview, the mental grid through which he ran his life experiences, right, and therefore made his decisions. The goal has been twofold for those of us that are in the room that would say, yes, I want to follow Jesus or I am following Jesus, right? That we would see eye to eye. And then also to understand the varying worldviews that our culture, our neighbors, our friends, our family, the way they see things, right? And the point there is to help us to be better neighbors, to be better friends and family, to understand why there are people, and you know, politicians use this, marketers use this to divide us all up. What we want to do is use our worldview to begin to see maybe similarities and where we differ and why, to help us relate more with, with patience and understanding and less judgment and hate, to understand why it is with some folks we, we don't see eye to eye. So, a lot of water's already run under this bridge. If it's your first week with us, I can't go over all or, 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 or where we've been. You know, we've laid a lot of the subfloor. We've discussed what a worldview is, why it's important. Your worldview, right, the way you run things through that mental grid, it really is the basis for every decision you make in your life. It runs through the way you see things, right? The, the where you're going to wind up, your destiny is determined by your worldview. And so we began to put some of the structures in place for seeing things the way Jesus did. We looked at the bedrock principle of any worldview that, that we would want to adopt that is like Jesus's, which is four words, in the beginning, God, right? That there is a God and that he is creator God and he created everything that's been created uh, with a point, on purpose, for a purpose, as we've been saying. We looked at that first week, the proofs of God's existence, the first cause argument, the design argument. We moved on to understanding that every worldview, even the ones that say they don't claim to have absolute truth, every worldview actually does claim that there are absolute truths. 
Then we began to look at that objective truths aren't just scientific or historical, but you can also have moral truths that are objective and not subjective. We looked at the nature of man, the problem of our shared brokenness, our sinful nature, why there's evil in the world. And, and last week, Dr. Emmanuel helped us understand why Jesus did and why we should rely on the scriptures as authoritative in our lives. These are, these are the documents from which we draw our worldview. Now, today's piece in the worldview puzzle, right, is one that I would say that even those of us in the room who say we're Christians, we tend not to see eye to eye on this piece, if we're honest. If we're really honest, we're not very comfortable with, with this piece. Jesus seemed to be very comfortable with it. His followers, not so much. Today, I want to look at the nature of God. We looked at a couple weeks ago the nature of man, what our problem is, why things are the way they are on earth, the problem of sin, right, which has kind of mucked everything up down here. Today, we want to look at God and see God the way Jesus saw his Father. Now, there are, as we talked about week one, there are lots and lots of ways to see the world out there, right? And really, over the last few weeks, I've kind of honed down to just two contrasting worldviews that I think are the prevalent ones amongst our friends and our neighbors and our culture. There's, there's two that dominate in my mind. So, uh, in terms of the nature of God, I want to look at, as we begin, how those two dominant worldviews that are out there, how they would see things, how they would see the nature of God. What is God like? The first dominant worldview that you run into every day, I run into every day, and of course all of us have this mind view to, one, to some degree or another, is the naturalistic mind view. This is what we call the WYSIWYG mind view. What you see is what you get, right? Where the only things that are true or right are things that I can see, hear, taste, measure, or prove. That's the naturalistic worldview, right? It's kind of a scientific worldview. The only thing that matters is what we can prove to be true. And of course, that view of God, the naturalistic view of God, that view is easy to understand, and it's very simple. Since we can't prove that God exists, God does, therefore God does not exist. There is no all-powerful creator. There is no nature of God. There's just nature. And randomness and, and choice, uh, random choice and, and natural selection. The naturalist, and again, a very dominant worldview, the naturalist would say there's no need to consider the nature of God. There is no God. All you need to ponder is how you can possibly control nature. And so that's kind of one worldview. What's the nature of God to folks that share a naturalistic mindset? You don't need to worry about it. There is no God. Now, the, the, the other dominant worldview in my mind that's kind of out on the streets today is an individualistic worldview, which I think often gets combi combined with what, what sociologists would call a pragmatic worldview. God may or may not exist, but if he does, it, it, he's not personal and knowable. Therefore, in his absence, since we can't know him, yeah, he might be out there somewhere, but in his absence, what really matters is me. Life revolves around me. My decisions are based on what feels right. My rights, my feelings, my thoughts and judgments, they need to be honored. They are valid and true. Since they would argue there is no absolute truth, my truth is as good as any truth, and you should honor my truth, my heart, my way. Just follow your heart. That's the battle cry of, of this very dominant mindset. And when you combine that with a pragmatic view, which is, right, if, if it works, it's right, right? 
If it works, it's true. It becomes if it works for you, then you do you. Whatever works for you is what you should do. You live your truth. Now, here's the interesting thing about the nature of God. I would argue that many of us who who want to follow Jesus, who are trying to walk in his ways, right? I think many of us would share the same understanding about the nature of God as the individualist does, those that would argue there might be a God, but it doesn't matter because right now what matters is me. Here's why I would say that. Let's jump out of the, 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 the talk for a moment. And church, if I was going to say to you, I want you to describe for me God, right? If I was to say, I, I need you to tell me what God is like. If I was to make it really simple and I just said, church, God is, what would you say? Love. God is love, right? Of course you would say that. That's what you've been told ever since you were a little kid, right? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And that's why I had Dr. Emmanuel here last week to kind of talk about why you should believe the scriptures. But here's the thing. If I were to go down on a South Street in Morristown this morning, if I were to ask my friends and neighbors and coworkers that don't claim to have any personal relationship, the 96,176 people that live within one town of our church, that don't claim to have any personal relationship with God, right? If I said to them, okay, well, describe for me, I know you, you don't know him, but if you were to describe God, what would you say about God? What would they tell me? They would say that God is love. That's the dominant worldview in our culture is that God, if he exists, is a God of love. You see this from, from an individualistic mindset. And again, I'm not criticizing these mindsets. I'm just, I think, trying to do my best to just show that they exist. From an individualistic mindset, which is so prevalent today amongst our friends and family, what they would say is, um, I believe in a God of love, right? Or my God is a God of love. So is ours. So do we share that same kind of understanding about the nature of God? Pretty interesting, I think. If Dr. Emanuel was right, last week he said the scriptures, and he gave reasons, are authoritative, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, and that we should take them as absolute truth, and that we should, like Jesus, therefore, since they are true and reliable, we should orient our life around what they say. You know, the scriptures actually record God saying what he's like. It's a huge, big honking deal in the history of the nation of Israel that God shows up one day and describes himself to Moses. And here's how he, he told Moses, here's how he described who he was. And this gets repeated for the rest of the Bible over and over and over. They always describe God not in their terms, but, but, but how God described himself, right? Here's how God, here's what God Moses, told Moses about himself. He said, the Lord, the Lord, that in Hebrew was Yahweh. Sometimes we sing about Yahweh, right? Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. This, in the Bible, right? is the most returned to way of seeing God, that he's compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. In fact, right, when, in Hebrew, when God describes himself as slow to anger, I don't know if any of you, if you ever heard this before, it's actually funny. Do you know what slow to anger in Hebrew, how that's actually translated in English? It's translated that God is long of nose. God has a big schnoz. 
by his own account, okay? God is going, I am the God of a long nose, which when you think about it, right, if he's a God of love and a God with a long nose, he could kill someone with an Eskimo kiss. This is the power of the God that we're talking about. Now, where does this come from? Well, in the scriptures, in the Hebrew, the common Hebrew way to describe somebody that was angry was to say that their nose burned hot. You'll see this in some of the Proverbs and some of the Psalms, right? When somebody gets angry, you ever been angry? And you, f you ever get angry and feel really hot? And then you ever see somebody that's really angry? What happens to their face, right? It just, oh, you can see the blood pour into their face. And their nose, in a sense, would be kind of like the, the, the peak of that. And so what God is saying, right? And, and again, this is in, in other places in the, Israel, in the scriptures. What God is saying is, because he's spirit, he doesn't actually have a nose. What he's saying is, the injustice of the broken world that we live in, which is broken by the problem, the nature of man, our sin, all of the things that happen in the earth anger him, get him upset, get him red in the face, but he has long patience with them. He, he, he's compassionate and slow to anger. He has a very large nose, and, and it doesn't, it does, he doesn't end it quickly. But here's the key point for today. Because of sin and brokenness, and it's resulting in justice and pain and misery, God does get angry. God does get angry. You see, we know and love the first part of the description of God, Right? that he gives for himself. We, we, we put that on pillows, hanging on our fridge. Oh, the Lord, the Lord is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. He maintains love to thousands. He forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Right? Oh, I love it. But that wasn't all that he said. He kept going, which is really not great. If, if you have a Western mindset, because here's what he said. Yet, yet, he doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. Now, that last part really is saying that the, the sin that a father and a mother hand down to their children, right, the, the patterns of their living usually last to the third and the fourth generation. And so, so God is, is going to punish that sin that winds up moving through families, right? It's not that the innocent people are being punished. It's that this is a sin pattern within a family. God, let me just read that. He does not leave the guilty unpunished. God is a God of love. And God is a God of justice. God is a God of love, but God reveals that he is a God of justice. And I, I need you to understand, God, I know that we're a little embarrassed about this sometimes, right? Like it's like, well, God is not shy or embarrassed about it. And I'm going to show you why you should not be either. God is a God who loves, and God is a God who judges. And this dual nature, it's all over the scriptures. And for the people of God, what, what I want you to understand is, see, from the comfort of our suburban households here in, in America in the year 2022, this scripture does not drive a lot of hope and love. It drives fear. But that's not always the way it was for the people of God. 
A God who judges, right, and a God who loves was not a God with a personality disorder. You know, you have friends, right, like I do that go, well, I believe in the God of the New Testament, not the God of the Old Testament. It's the same God. Let me show you. Psalm 98. Shout for joy to the Lord, all of the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with harp, with the harp and the sound of singing, with trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn. Shout for joy before the Lord, the King. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord for, do you know what all of this celebration is for? All of this singing, all of this joy. Do you know why the whole earth is rejoicing? For he comes to judge the earth. He'll judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. Apparently, at one time in a very different culture to a very oppressed people, the thought of God judging was something that made them sing. Again, Psalm 145, the Lord is righteous in all of his ways and faithful in all that he does. He's near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and he saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him. But, oh boy, <laughs> I don't like buts. But all the wicked he will destroy. Which again, I... I understand in our current cultural context with modern Western mindsets, this is very uncomfortable, right? Like, this is like, well, I'm sure I believe in that God. And I know right now some of you are going, oh, for heaven's sakes, I brought a friend to this today. I can't believe we're going down this road, right? John, New Testament God, New Testament God, not Old Testament God. Loving, not judging. But here, here's what I, I hope you, where you'll come around to by the end of this. This is such a critical pillar in understanding who God is, right? You don't, and neither actually does your friend, or for that matter, you don't want a God that doesn't judge. You don't. You want and demand justice. This week, I, I, I wanted to, I forgot to send it in to, to our volunteers. I was trying to find a picture to kind of show, show this, and there was a, a recent um, assault on the streets in, in, in some town overseas. And uh, this guy came up, kind of a professional kickboxer guy, and there was some random guy in the street, and uh, they got into an argument, and he just turns and drops kicks this guy. And the guy is unconscious on the ground, right? And the guy's just laying there, and everybody, there was thousands of comments. And you know what every comment said? I hope you get yours. I hope they do this to you. I hope they do. You're glad. You should be glad I wasn't there because it wouldn't have gone down this way, right? Now, we confuse God's justice with our demand for you know a pound of flesh. That's not God's justice. But my point was, everybody all over the world watches that and goes, "Oh, that's not right. Oh, that can't stand," right? We want justice. We want a God of justice. And so let me ask you a question. Why does everyone, right? Why does everyone that's open to their being a God, why does almost everyone in the Western world, why do we all see that God or believe that God is a God of love? Why would you think that? Like, where did that come from? 
Why? Where, where is this knowledge that everybody seems to have of a loving God come from? A God who, who see, what you need to understand is, prior to Jesus, nobody thought about God that way. Like in Moses' world, right? And, and, and look deep into our own, the recesses of our own mind, right? Even in the dark places, in the deepest recesses of our minds, we don't really often believe that God's a God of love. We have that voice in our head that goes, you're in trouble, you're in trouble, you're in trouble, right? In the history of mankind, God was never seen as loving until Jesus shows up on the scene. God was seen as angry and mad and disappointed and that he needed to be appeased. This is why you can go all over creation and find sacrificial offers or altars made to every God that's ever been invented. All the way up to people always trying to appease an angry God where they would actually even sacrifice their children. Horrific levels of sacrifice. Why? Not because God always oh, so loving, he's so loving. For the history of the world, the story of God was that God is angry and mad and you better do something to appease him. I can't find for you a religious text outside of the scriptures, outside of the Bible, that said God created the world out of love and delight. It doesn't exist. Most ancient pagan religions believe the world was created through struggles and violent battles between opposing gods and supernatural forces. Now, where would, over time, prior to, prior to Jesus showing up on the scene, where would everybody that had ever lived gotten the idea that God is so mad? That God is so angry, where would you get that from? You just got to look out your window. You just got to look out your window into a sin-stained, broken world, right? Like, nature. Nature is just so kind and loving, right? I mean, it's just so peaceful in the harmony, the circle. We jazz it up. We make it sound pretty. It's not pretty. Right? Nature, nature, if nature is God, then God is not loving because nature runs on survival of the fittest. And of course, it's not just nature, right? Even, even those with an individualistic mindset where pragmatism rules. If it works for you, then it's true. Well, if it works for you, all you got to do is look through the pages of history and see, see what man's reign as its own God with it, man determining what absolute standards exist for right and wrong and moral goodness. Again, if man is a God unto himself, right, you would have to conclude that God is not all that loving either. So in the face of everything that would say God is not loving, God's angry and you better keep him happy, where did you get the idea that God is loving from? The answer is Jesus. It is uniquely Christian perspective on who God is. John, one of the, the disciples that walked with Jesus, after a lifetime, he's a very old man likely when he's writing this, of reflecting over his years of, of walking with Jesus and now having served in Jesus' post-resurrection for 30 years in a world where John experienced injustice like crazy, right? John would wind up being exiled into a, to a desert island. John sits down and he goes, in the midst of all of the injustice, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world. Not just the Jewish people. God loved everybody. Everybody. John is going, 
even while he's feeling the oppression and the terror of the sin-stained world, even while he's not experiencing justice right now, he goes, yeah, but here's one thing I learned about God from walking with him. He loves the whole world. In fact, he would go on to double down on it. He, he, he writes, um, dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Why? Because everybody who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. A God of love from either a naturalistic mindset, all you see is all there is, right? It, it, or an individualistic mindset of there are no absolute truths, just what I deem to be true. A God that loves makes no sense apart from these teachings. It came from these teachings. No one believed that. Nobody believed that God was love until Jesus comes along and says, it's a God of love and he loves everybody. Maybe the most famous naturalist, the most famous scientific mind over the last half century or so that held to a naturalistic mindset, there is no God, therefore there is no standard of justice. In fact, there is no justice, right? If there's, there's no God because we can't see him, taste him, smell him, or measure him, Stephen Hawking, he made a super famous conclusion about where that mindset, where that worldview ultimately will lead, where the nature of sin will lead. If, if, if there is just nature, if, if there is no God that's good, then there's just us. And where does that leave us? He actually answered where it leaves us. I came across it in my research, and, and it's honestly been picked up by a lot of people in the world that have debated his conclusion. In a talk at Cambridge University, here's what Stephen Hawking concluded about his own mindset. He said, my only fear is this. The terror that stalks my mind is that when we have arrived on the scene because of evolution, because of naturalistic selection. And natural selection assumes natural rejection, which means we've arrived here because of our aggression. And my hope is that somehow we can keep from eating each other up for another hundred years. And at that point, this is his hope. This is where his hope lied. I'm, this is exactly what he said, right? My hope is that somehow, if we could just keep from eating each other up for another hundred years, at that point, science would have devised a scheme to take us all into different planets of the universe, and no atrocity would destroy all of us at the same time. That was his hope. Because if there's no God, there's no good God. And if he's not a good God, then there is no such thing as justice. It just is what it is. He understood our nature, that you weren't created in the image of God. There is no dignity amongst any of us, therefore, and therefore there's no justice. There's no standard of justice or of love or dignity. And so what you begin to understand is that God, if he's a God of love, which he is, this is an idea that originated with Jesus, a love for all people made in the image of God. Now stick with me. If God is a God of love, then God must be a God of justice. He has to be. They're intertwined. You cannot love and not be just. He's a God of justice because he's a God that loves. When you remove from God the, this equation, when you remove the absolute truth and his standards and his judgment, when you take God out of the equation, which, by the way, has been what modern mindsets have wanted to do, if we could just pull God out of the equation, out of the minds of man, 
then we wouldn't have to worry about all of these issues that come with God. What you have left then is the justice of nature, where there is no judgment other than Darwinian natural order or might makes right, or the individualistic mindset, where your justice is your justice, and my justice is my justice, and ISIS justice is ISIS justice. And Nazi justice is Nazi justice. And racist justice is racist justice. And whoever the powerful is, their justice is the standard. See, you don't want just a God of love. You want a God of justice. If God is a God of love, there has to be a God of justice. God has to be, if he loves, a God that judges Jesus brought us the idea of a God who loves, but it's not an Old Testament idea. Jesus didn't show up and say, oh, just forget about everything else that was ever said about him. I'm just here to love. That's not all he said about God. There is coming a day, Jesus would say, over and over, that the world, right, there will be justice for everybody. Don't you understand? This is why the Old Testament saints that, that sat under oppression all over the world, that sat in poverty, that sat in a broken world, would sit there and, and long for justice, sing about the day justice would break out. This is why the Apostle John, sitting on a desert island, could go, I can't wait for the morning of justice. Not revenge, justice. A God who loves must be a God who judges. None of us like this idea. You know why? It's simple. Because it's easy to want justice for the 9-11 guys, right? Who wants justice for the 9-11 guys? Raise your hand if you're big on justice for the 9-11 guys. Thank the ones that didn't. Thank God you're not in charge of the country. I want justice for the 9-11 guys. Who wants justice for the Nazis? I want justice for the Nazis. Who wants justice for the bully that, that, that made your kid begin to cut himself? Who wants justice for the bully? I want justice for the bully. I want justice for the dealer that sold my kid the drugs. I want justice for my spouse that lied and cheated and stole. I want justice on the hussy he did it with. I want justice for me, and I want judgment for them. There's only thing, one thing I don't want. You know what it is? Judgment on me. That's the only thing I don't want. That's when this gets uncomfortable. And here's the truth, and we all know it's true. We all have this voice in our head that reminds us on a somewhat regular basis, we don't measure up even to our own internal standards, even to the kind of person that we say we are, the kind of person that we pretend we are, the kind of person that we want to be. We don't measure up to that, let alone to God's holiness. This is a crazy story in the book of Matthew. I love, this is such a funny, it's not funny, it's terrible, but it's ironic, I guess. Matthew, he's one of Jesus' disciples, right? And he was actually a traitor to his country. He, Jesus called him away from being a tax collector, which meant that he was a Jew working for the Romans, oppressing his people. Matthew had a voice in his head that likely said on a regular basis, you're in big trouble. You're in big, big trouble. And Matthew, right, it, it's interesting, last two weeks ago, if you haven't read it, you should go back and look up that, that, that article I told you about two weeks ago, The Strange Persistence of Guilt. The modern era has said, if we just got rid of God, there'd be no more guilt, there'd be no more shame, but yet it endures. All psychologists and sociologists can't figure out why, but it endures, right? Matthew would have had that same strange persistence of guilt. 
Here's what he wrote about Jesus. Oh, I love you. John, I've got friends here. Stop talking about Jesus like this. Okay, I'll just use his own words. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they didn't repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Eek. What happened to, like, stuffed animal Jesus? See, this is the Jesus we don't stitch on pillows. This is the Jesus that makes us uncomfortable, right? But here's what Jesus understood about his father. If God is a God of love and justice, then God has to be a God who judges, who sets all things right in the end, that there is a standard in the world. And it's not, therefore, a free-for-all. It is not a free-for-all where might makes right. In the end, there will be justice. There is a standard, and everyone, because God is loving, everyone will thus be judged. The world will not, in the world to come, be a mess. There is an absolute standard, and all of us fall short of it in one way or another. So interesting, okay? Can I just give you one as Christians, one that will blow your mind a little bit? Over the years, Christians have used this passage as a means to pass judgment on those outside of the church whose sexual morals don't live up to the biblical standards, which is kind of comical because most folks in the church, our sexual standards don't live up to the biblical standards. But we love to wave fingers. We're very good at that, right? And so we've used this verse to kind of shame people outside of the church. Now, here's what you don't understand. Most of us, when we hear Jesus say that, we go, oh, Sodom, see? Sodom, we know why Sodom got judged, and you people are going to get judged just like Sodom got judged. We hear it, and we go back to the story in Genesis. If you've been around the scriptures, you know, Sodom was judged, at least we, we, we believe, because of their sexual licentiousness and their sin, their sexual sin. Now, that's true, but it's not complete. In the Old Testament book of Ezekiel, here's what God says. Here's how God reveals why he judged Sodom. Now, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They didn't help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them, as you've seen. Sodom, according to God in Ezekiel, was also judged because they had no interest at all in social justice. They were arrogant. They were unconcerned about the poor and the needy. Which brings about an interesting thought I heard this week about our culture. Our culture tends to produce two groups, right, that point fingers at each other. One would say, hey, 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 whoa, 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 there is no standard for sexuality. I should feel free to express my sexuality in whatever manner I deem right. But social injustice, that is sinful and shameful. That'd be one camp, right? Others, and the church has been guilty of this, would say, no, 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 no. We're going to focus on sexual immorality. That's going to be the standard by which we hold everybody to. And the poor and, and the broken and the marginalized, you know, well, yeah, we feel bad about them, but it's not as big a deal. Sodom was judged for both, which makes you wonder, at a final judgment, 
is there anybody that will be able to stand? Because we're both in trouble. And this is where the gospel of Jesus Christ comes in. And it's where the gospel of Jesus first starts to make any sense, right? Jesus, right after he pronounces these woes, these curses on these cities, in the same teaching, in fact, I took, I took the, the, the verses word for word here from Matthew, right? Matthew goes, at that time, at the same time, he's passing judgment, same time. Jesus says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned, and you've revealed them to little children. It was kind of a reminder of what Paul would later say about how God has revealed these things in nature, who he is to everybody, right? And, 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 and then he says these most famous words, and you have never heard these attached to judgment in your life, okay? Never, I promise you. But this is how they were attached when Jesus said them. Next verse. Come to me, all you who are heavy laden, you're weary and burdened, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my, my burden is light. Jesus says that Sodom was judged because of their inability to keep the Old Testament laws, but then he goes into Capernaum and the cities that he worked and taught in, and he goes, and you're going to be judged for your inability to follow the laws I gave you, even the greater laws of love. You know, you read what Jesus said, none of us can keep those things, right? And if you lust after a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart. If you hate your brother, it's like murder. I mean, none of us could stand, right? If this is the kind of standard, which again, I think... We all feel that at some deep level, especially those of us that follow Jesus. We read about him and we're like, oh man, I fall woefully short. Somehow we can't escape this feeling of not being able to measure up. I think this is really at the heart of a national problem we have here in our country. We are the richest nation that has ever existed. We are the most self-reliant nation of all time, yet we are the most depressed and anxious and medicated people on earth. Why? It makes no sense. Unless there's some, this strange persistence of guilt. We all have in us this little voice that goes, you're not measuring up. You don't measure up. You don't measure up. And if God is a God of love, then he must be a God of justice. If God is a God of justice, then there must be a judgment where all things will be made right. And if there is a justice, a judgment, I have to tell you, like you, I have an inner feeling that I'm in big trouble. Remember what Paul wrote? He said the wrath of God, right? Here's the anger of God. He's got a long nose, but he gets angry. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth right? That's a big issue. Suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what could be known about God is plain to them. God has made it plain. For since creation of the world is invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, they've been clearly seen, being understood from what's been made so that people are without excuse. But then listen, I never caught this till this week. He goes on, he goes, talking about us, who, these people, knowing the righteous judgment of God and those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Focus in on this, who knowing the righteous judgment of God. We all have this inner voice that goes, mm, something's not right, and I'm part of the problem. And so what's the solution? Jesus says, 
It's me. Come unto me, all of you. Jesus says it's him. Jesus is the judge. Jesus is the solution. Jesus is the judger. Jesus is the savior. Guys, don't you see into a world deserving of judgment, God did not send a judge. Into a world deserving of judgment, God did not send a judge. Right? He sent a savior. Here's the truth, Jesus follower or not, you want some kind of standard of right and wrong. This is why the ancients rejoiced at the justice of God. Everybody wants it, but there's this internal problem where we go, I don't like judgment. And this is the beauty of the gospel. Because it gives us both into a world that needs judgment and justice long before he judged the world. He created a way to be saved. For God did not send into the world, his son into the world, to condemn the world, but to save the world. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Jesus is going, I am the judge who was judged in your place. I am both the just and the justifier for all who would believe and trust in me. I mean, on the cross, right, the righteous wrath and anger of God and the justice of God and the love of God perfectly coincide and shine forth through the ages. Jesus is the only perfect satisfaction of the just nature of God. And so when he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, he's not just saying, take on what I've taught you. He's saying, take on place over you, my righteousness, my covering, my forgiveness, my sacrifice, all that I purchased for you, it's all been done for you. Every other religion, because everybody has this internal feeling, every other religion says you got to try harder, you got to strive harder, you got to give more, you got to sacrifice more. God might want your children. You know what Jesus says? Rest. Stop. It's the ultimate distinction between Christianity and every other worldview. See, if you take justice and judgment away from the gospel, you don't have a God of love. You have a God of great indifference. Don't you see that? Don't take justice out of the gospel. You'll have nothing left. What Jesus is ultimately saying is, if there's not a God of judgment, if, if you don't get it, how short you fall of the standard, then you'll never understand and find peace. It's only an understanding that there is a judgment that you find peace. If you have some kind of claim to being righteous, right, most other worldviews would say, I'm a good person, therefore I'm okay. Then now you have a claim on God's justice. And so when things don't work out, you start to go, well, how... Why is this happening to me? Why, I'm such a good guy. God kind of owes me. Until you understand justice, you'll never appreciate and know the love of God. You'll never find peace. You'll never find hope. For every one of us this morning that's burned out, stressed out, tired, discouraged, disappointed, you've worked so hard, you've tried so hard, and none of it seems to matter. And you've tasted injustice. You've seen what the world and nature has done and destroyed in your life with your kids. This morning, can I encourage you to look to the cross and sing like the Old Testament saints? Don't you understand there's a day of justice coming for you and your family? Injustice will not eternally stand. Everything is going to be made right in the end. And you can stand too. So too will you. 
One very famous apologist put it this way. He said, there are four absolutes that every human that's ever existed had in mind. Love, justice, evil, and forgiveness. When you can see horror and grace side by side, you realize there is no place, humanly speaking, where we can find an absolute way to understand these things except for the cross of Christ. We pervert love, we distort justice, we multiply evil, we all fail at forgiveness. But only on the cross of Jesus Christ do love and justice and evil and and forgiveness converge. Evil in the heart of man, shown in the crucifixion, love in the heart of God who gives his son, forgiveness through the grace of Jesus Christ, and justice as the law was satisfied. Friends, you don't only want a God who loves, you want a God who judges. Let's stand and sing of them together.